Hi there, this is Sam Musgrave, pastor over college and young adult ministry at Trinity Community Church. This podcast is a collection of the sermons from our gatherings. My prayer is that you will grow in knowledge and love for King Jesus, or maybe come to faith in Him for the very first time. Join me now for this sermon. Tonight, we continue our story, our journey through this book of Esther. So for those that are new, welcome again. Um, all you, all the FPU people and the one Grace Church, the Valley people, welcome. I think there was just one from GCV, right? Right? What's the one? Yeah. So welcome again. So if you recall, last week we were in Esther chapter 1 and we finished it. And so far, Esther has been proven to be a very unique portion of scripture, set in the courts of a pagan king, ruling a pagan nation, no mention of Yahweh or his law, and yet we learn that is actually the intention of the author. Because, because he's teaching us that God is sovereignly working in every detail of life, though it may seem as if he's not working. Nothing could be further from the truth. He's always working. In fact, the name of Yahweh does not even have to be invoked for us to know that nothing happens outside of his ultimate and good purposes. One author said about the book of Esther, the author of Esther had ample opportunity to refer to God, prayer, and the covenant. The complete absence of God is the genius of the book from which hope and encouragement flow. God is providentially working through the means of ordinary circumstances of people to bring about his ultimate purpose, which is going to be as we just heard Drew pray, his glory and, our pe- and his people's good. So far we've witnessed in chapter 1 the, the great power and affluence of King Ahasuerus. Who, by the way, again we learned that he is also King Xerxes. King Ahasuerus is King's, King Xerxes from history that we learned from the Persian Empire. We learned from chapter 1 that there's no one like this king. Chapter 1, the author made clear that there's no human being like him. This this world leader who has endless riches, it's in a way meant to inspire a level of awe and, and fear in us. And yet, when we see the wicked rule like this, we don't have to fear. Because every empire that sets itself, well, not just those empires that set themselves against God. Every empire has been set there by God. Just castles of glass rising and falling at his command. Ahasuerus, we learned, is powerful, is rich, but Yahweh is infinite in power, omnipotent. And Yahweh owns all the riches. Psalm 50, verse 10 says, For every, the Lord is speaking, For every beast of the field is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns it all. 
And we see that through a very foolish request to his queen and a very foolish decree. By the end of chapter 1, Ahasuerus proves to be nothing more than a fool and not a very awesome king. A fool that we really laugh at instead of fear. This evening, as we begin chapter 2, we mentioned this last week, chapter 2, the, the, the clocks have been fast-forwarded three years. There's a three-year gap between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Three years since we last saw the king making his foolish decrees. And we're going to see three scenes in our text tonight. We're going to witness a defeated king in verse 1. Just one verse. Esther 2, verse 1. A defeated king. Verses 2 to 4, a royal competition. And verses 5 to 7, an unlikely family. Look at verse 1 with me. After these things... When the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. One verse, a lot packed in here. Let's take it, let's take it slow. After these things, three words, three years worth of things have taken place. Now, we read this and we instantly think, okay, well, it's just referring to chapter one. After everything that happened in chapter one, the, the, the army conference, the parties, the queen's refusal and dismissal, the decrees against her and the entire kingdom, all of that is what he's referring to when he says after these things. Yes, but much more than that. More, much, much more than that has taken place. And again, we referenced this last week. That this is when, in history, the Greco-Persian Wars happened. This is when King Xerxes, Ahasuerus, wages war against Greece. He, he marches his armies into Greece, and he ultimately suffers a terrible defeat. He goes against the might of the Greek empire. Ahasuerus valued numbers. Greece valued strength in the individual. Hence, you have those epic stories like the 300 Spartans fending off the Persians. The Greek Empire valued the individual, valued strength, and essentially, King Ahasuerus got his rear handed to him. He comes back to the kingdom, beaten and bruised and humiliated, suffering a terrible, terrible loss. But why is that important to know? So why is it important to know the history when we, when we read the Bible like this? Because when we read that little phrase, after these things, we realize, wait, this is God's sovereign hand and his faithfulness to his word. Let me explain. This is what God has already spoken would happen in the book of Daniel. God said this would happen. Daniel chapter 2 Verse 31, you can turn there if you'd like. This is when Daniel interprets King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Okay, so we're in Persia, now we're back to Babylon. Okay, so we're in Babylon right now. And this is what Daniel says. You saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of clay, partly of iron and partly of clay. 
As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. And it became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. This is what I want us to see. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heavens has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. Guess who this was? Persia. This now, and now in Esther we are in, we are talking about the Persians. So he says, you are the head, O king Nebuchadnezzar. Then there's a kingdom that's going to come after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth image, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. A lot I read, I understand. But I wanted to read that for us to understand. He's talking to the four different world empires, right? It started with Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And those are, that's, the Jews were exiled under Babylon. Babylon came and invaded the southern kingdom of Judah. And then Persia comes and invades Babylon. And they defeat Babylon. And now, between Esther 1 and 2, the world power scene is about to change to Greece. And I say all that because, listen, God is faithful to his word. This is, what, this is what God said would happen, and it's happening as God said it would happen. We, we looked at last week and said, saw how King Ahasuerus was able to give an irrevocable command that could not be taken back, by the way. Likewise, Yahweh's word is truly unalterable, truly irrevocable. What he says will come to pass. What he says will come to pass. Ezekiel 12, verse 25 says, For I am the Lord. I will speak the word that I will speak, and it will be performed. It will no longer be delayed, but in your days, O rebellious house, I will speak the word and perform it declares the Lord God. God's word will happen. It will be accomplished. Job 42.2 says, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Do you realize this? That, that, that when you open your Bibles in the morning or in the evening or whenever you have that time that you separate to spend time in the Word, do you realize that as you open the Word, like it is the truth of God? Like, yeah, we, we agree to it, we confess it, but I mean it, it's the truth. What you are reading will come to pass according to God's sovereign will. It's going to happen. History tells us this, and that's why when we read this short phrase, like after these things, Persia got their rears, but their rears handed to them. I did not just say that. Their rears handed to them. By, by uh, Greece. And that was all according to God's sovereign hand. You see, it's all coming together as the Lord would have it. 
This is wonderful news. This is. Here's the reality, though. The fact that God's word will come to pass, here's the thing. There's two sides to this. For the unbeliever, it's absolute dread. Right? For the unbeliever, this is, this is dreadful. Because if you do not know the Lord as your Savior, everything he says in, your wor- in the word of God about unbelievers will happen. Hell is real. It is a place of eternal conscious punishment and torture. God's word is true. But for the believer, it's the best news ever. Because for the believer, everything that, that, that is said about you in Christ is true. You have been justified. You are being sanctified by his spirit. He will bring you to glory. These things are true and they will happen. Despite their countless sins over their several years of ministry with Jesus, the disciples were rebuked for one thing above all else. Unbelief. Not trusting that the word of the Lord would happen. Not trusting in Christ, who is the word. God's word is true. Trust it. It will come to pass. Moving forward. Last week, the king we saw suffered from uncontrolled anger. The man had no self-control over his emotions. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 9 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Ahasuerus gave full vent to his anger by dismissing the queen, Queen Vashti, forever from his presence. He was a fool to do this. But now we see something that catches us off guard a little bit. That anger, we read in verse 2, has been abated. Or that's what the ESV says. The LSB says subsided. It's no longer there. Right? The anger is gone. He's relented of his anger. And he remembers three things. He remembers Vashti, he, re- she re- he remembers what she did, and he remembers what was decreed against her. It's as if he's sitting there missing. Remember, he's defeated. He's back at the palace now. He goes, sitting there, sad, wondering why she wasn't there. And he goes, I, I, I remember. I kind of got angry and kicked her out of the palace. That's why she's not there. And, and the command's irrevocable, so I, I got to reap what I've sown. That, that, that's what's going on here. Imagine this. Ahasuerus, defeated, returns to his grand palace, beaten and bruised, and instead of coming home to a warm embrace from his queen, he comes home to empty halls and no one to greet him. He's sad. He's sorry. If he could change things, he would. He's sad. Memory is a powerful powerful thing. We see here that that he remembers. Memory is a very powerful thing. Human beings aren't meant to forget. When we do, it's not a healthy sign, right? Memory, remembering is a powerful, powerful thing. Over and over in scripture, we see in the Old Testament, God commands Israel, remember the Lord your God who brought you out of the house of slavery. Paul, when he's talking to Timothy, his last letter, 2 Timothy, strengthening him not to suffer and and be ashamed of the gospel. You know what he says? Remember Jesus Christ. 
Keep them in your mind. Don't forget them. Memory is a powerful thing. The king here remembers his queen, what she did, and maybe for the first time, realizing that what she did wasn't so bad. Maybe, maybe I overreacted. I mean, I was drunk and angry at the time. Just maybe I overreacted by kicking her out. Anger subsided. He's bringing to mind what happened. He's sorrowful. Does this count as repentance? Not in a salvific way. Not in a way that brought him salvation. But I do believe we see some sort of regret, some sort of sorrow here in the king's heart. He realized he was wrong, and the edict was made out of this drunkenness and anger. No wisdom was involved. But but here's the reality, guys. And I think, as Christians even, we, we can take this home with us. Even when we are genuinely sorry, you always have to, there's always going to be consequences to your choices. There's always consequences to sin. Now, they look different sometimes to different people in different circumstances, but there's always consequence. The consequence here is no matter how sorry he's going to be, he made a decree that can't be taken back. And he has to live with that choice. He has to live with that choice. Moving to point two. A royal competition, verses 2 to 4. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of the kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Susa of the citadel under the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the women who please, it, women who please the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So, no doubt, seeing the sorrow of the beaten king, those around him, we read the young men that surrounded him, said something needs to change. Now, interestingly enough, in chapter 1, when he had a problem, he consulted the wise men, those advisors he had. They're nowhere to be seen in this chapter, which tells me one of two things. Either he doesn't trust them, or he killed them because he was angry about the decision he made about Vashti. So they're, just, they're not in the scene. They're gone. So he goes to his young men, and the young men say, okay, we've got to figure something out here. We've got a depressed king, uh, a beaten king. Our kingdom's vulnerable. This is not looking great. Remember, he was a once, just not long ago, a world leader, and now he's just moping around the palace. This doesn't look good. What do we do? Let's get him a woman. That's a solution. Let's get a woman for him. And so, we see this empire-wide beauty contest. And I think here the king still looks a little foolish, right? He still can't make decisions for himself. Everybody else is telling him what to do. He has not made one decision for himself in this book so far. And, and yeah, we're going to see a lot of that happen in the rest of the book. He just doesn't make de- decisions for himself. Okay, so unlike a modern beauty pageant, not that I really know how they work, but I'm guessing this is how they work. You sign up for them. Do they, I don't even know if they have them still. It's probably gotten canceled because it's some woke thing. I don't know. But whatever the case is, what they once were, I'm sure you signed up for. This is not like that. You were forced into it. You had men coming into the homes, dragging you out from your parents. And saying, you are no longer here. You're going to be in this contest. 
These women were forced to become part of the king's harem. They could kiss goodbye to any future plans of being a wife or mother. They will forever be locked in the harem of the king, awaiting whenever he had a lustful desire. Josephus, the historian, tells us, I don't know if he knows for sure, but he says there are about 400 women in this thing. 400 women that they deemed beautiful enough to be in it. Remember, 400, if that's even true, only one of them be queen. That means 399 young women are in this harem. This is sad. And yet God is establishing his will and purpose through the sinful desires and deeds of man. Though never condoning sin, he is nonetheless sovereign over it. Just as the empire once commanded wives to submit to their husbands in chapter 1, now it commands the young women to become a part of this contest. Seriously, the Persian empire has a very domineering side toward women. But the question remains, out of the 400 young, beautiful women, who is to be queen? Who's to be queen? Well, remember the advice of the wise men, specifically Memucan from the last chapter. We read that whoever is going to replace Vashti needs to be, quote, better than Vashti. So how are they going to decide who is better than Vashti? Are they going to have an interview process? Are they going to ask him to the heart questions? Are they going to try to discover the woman's character and, and, and ascertain who's going to make the best queen? Who's wisest here? Nope, none of that. It's simple. Are you beautiful? And do you please the king sexually? That is the decision factor on whether or not you are going to be the next queen. Very foolish. One criterion of victory and one judge. The king must be satisfied in the morning with a young beautiful woman. Despite what the king decreed in desiring a better woman than Vashti to be queen, his, his tactic never changed from Vashti. He just desired physical beauty. He just lusted. Whoever pleased his lustful heart would be queen. If the king cannot have Vashti as queen due to his irrevocable command, then he will sleep around until he finds a suitable replacement. Point three, an unlikely family. Verse five, there, now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So we come to a unique turn in the story. So far, everything has been about Ahasuerus, about Xerxes. His party, his queen, his decrees, his sorrow, his beauty pageant. But now the author is going to do some new key figures. Mordecai and Esther. Verse 
First, we're introduced to Mordecai. And of utmost importance, before where he lives or be even before his name, the author wants us to know something. Now there was a Jew. Now there was a Jew. And that's more important than we think. And I don't think we should brush over it. I think we would do dishonor to the text if we did. This, this is the first mention of anything related to Israel. God's people. Mordecai, the Jew. Mordecai, his name is a Babylonian-rooted name, but more important than his name, he wants you to know that he's a Jew. He's a Jew. Yes, his name may be of Babylonian, of the Babylonian world, but he is a member of God's covenant people. In fact, to stress this truth, the author references Mordecai's Jewishness. He literally says Mordecai the Jew ten times in these, I'm excuse me, got it backward, eight times in these ten different chapters. Eight times in these ten different chapters. Why? To ensure that we understand that Mordecai's nationality and ultimately Mordecai's faith is of far more importance than even his own name. It's as if the author would rather us remember the fact that he is a Jew rather than his name being Mordecai. Is that you? Are you identified with Christ? It's Brett's birthday. I'll pick on Brett. Is it... Brett the Christian. Brett. You see where I'm going with this? My, my point in saying, is it, is it Chad the Christian? Is it, is it Christian the Christian? <laughs> Look, I, I don't need people to remember me. I want them to remember Christ. Right? I, I don't need them to remember me. I'm not worth remembering. I want to see, I want them to remember, he, I want them to remember Christ. My, my faith is far more important than my name. Who cares if they remember Chad, if I didn't do anything with my life? I want them to remember the Lord Jesus Christ who saved me. I want that, I want my faith to speak louder than my name. If, if, if they remember my name but don't remember Christ in me, I failed. I failed as a Christian. And that's what the author, I believe, is stressing here. He wants us to see that Mordecai, yes, his name is Mordecai, but more than that, he's a Jew. He's a member of God's covenant people. It identifies him with God's chosen people. Susa, though it was where he lived, it was not his ultimate home. You see? It's not his ultimate home. Romans 9.4 says this. Paul says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's what it meant to be a Jew. 
At least that's what it's supposed to be mean. Now we, we know not every Jew is saved. We know that clearly from just reading the Old Testament. I mean, we're studying Romans 2 right now. Read Romans 2. We're studying on Sunday mornings. But this is what it meant to be a Jew. To be a Jew meant you were in fellowship with the Most High God. With Yahweh. Hosea 11.1 God calls Israel my son. The Israelites had fellowship with God. They had been given his word, his law. No other nation had received that. They were blessed above all people when God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. What does he say to him? I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing to the nations. Above all that, to be a Jew meant you awaited your Messiah. That's what it meant to be a Jew. And again, I'm not saying by default, if you're born a Jew, that you're in the clear, you're innocent, and you don't need repentance. No, you're born in sin. You're not born in fellowship with God. You're born in sin. Everyone, regardless of nationality, is saved in the same way, faith in what God has accomplished and what God has done through his son. Was Mordecai a devout Jew who exercised sincere faith in Yahweh? I guess we don't, we can't know for certain, but, but I'm confident that he did. I'm confident that he did because the author here is stressing his faith, his nationality. The author wants us to know that in the midst of this wicked nation, there stands someone from another nation, one whose God is Yahweh. And two things we learn about Mordecai in this passage. One, we learn a bit about his family. And two, we learn that he was in exile. When God's judgment on Judah came down and the Babylonians uh, um, just raided the southern kingdom of Judah. This happened in three deportations. And these dates are important. 605, 597, and 586. The text identifies Mordecai's exile with this guy, Jeconiah, king of Judah. And we learn that he was taken in a second deportation, 597. We learned that from 2 Kings 24, if you're interested. Here's where we encounter the problem. The, es- the events of Esther are taking place in 480 BC. Which means, if you do a little math, even if Mordecai were a newborn at the time, that makes him about 117 years old right now. So we got a an issue, right? We got to figure that out. And furthermore, Esther, who would probably be only about 20 years younger than Mordecai, would be about in her late 90s. And if she is going to qualify as a young, beautiful virgin, I don't think that works. So we know that we, so when we read this verse, it says this, verse 6, or verse 5 again. Now there was a Jew in Susa the Zittah whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shemai, son of Kish, a Benjamite who had been carried away from Jerusalem. Naturally, we want to read that line, who had been carried away from Jerusalem, and apply it to Mordecai. But based off of those dates, we kind of have to apply it to the last guy in the name list there, son of Kish. Kish Kish was probably his great-grandfather that got exiled. And because he got exiled, Mordecai got exiled by default. It's important to know that because I think 
also, we read these names, and a name in this list should sound familiar to us. Son of Kish. And it says that he was a Benjamite. We know that from Scripture, Saul, King Saul, that happened hundreds of years before this, was also from a man named Kish, a Benjamite. So the point is not that there's the same dad here, because again, that wouldn't work age-wise. But the point is that the author is relating Mordecai's heritage with Saul's heritage, which is going to stand in direct contrast to Haman, who was... Remember, if you remember a couple weeks ago when Sam taught, Haman was an Agagite from the Amalekites. The Amalekites and the Israelites were bitter enemies. And there was vitriol like you don't even imagine. So when we see later on that uh, Mordecai, who was descended from Saul, refused to bow before Haman, we, we kind of understand why. There's some family, past, past family uh, drama there, to say the least. Finally, after all this time, though, we are introduced to the character who the book is named after, Esther. Finally, chapter 2, we, we see her name. We learn that Mordecai brought up Esther. In other words, he essentially fathered her after the death of her parents. Um, The text says that the young woman, Esther, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And thus, by the way, qualifying for Ahasuerus' vain and lustful beauty pageant. Esther would be ripped from her home, ripped from Mordecai, and placed in his harem. And she would have one night with the king to please him. And yet we know that it is in God's providential hand by which, we secure, by which he will secure salvation for his people through this act. Esther, Queen Esther, despite the sinful workings of man, is going to secure salvation by the hand of God. And by the way, this is how God always is working. Right? Despite our sins, even though we are wicked God is working through our sin to accomplish his purposes. And that's good news. That is really good news. Unlike Mordecai, the author provides us with Esther's Jewish Jewish name. We don't see Mordecai's Jewish name, but we see Esther's Jewish name here, Hadassah. Hadassah. And it's caught me off guard because why give Esther's Jewish name and not Mordecai's? Names are important in the Bible. Names are important. They're teaching us something. We shouldn't just overlook them. They're teaching us something. They're in the inspired word of God. Therefore, they are important. Hadassah means myrtle, like the bush, myrtle. So what does Hadassah's name have to teach us? What's important about a myrtle bush? Well, Isaiah 55, verse 13, answers that for us. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Thorns and briars symbolize the judgment of God. 
while the cypress and myrtle symbolize the salvation of God. You see what's going on here. Judgment will be replaced by salvation. Hadassah, which by the way is a beautiful name, or Queen Esther, as we know, is the means by which God secures salvation for his covenant people from imminent annihilation, even though they are in a nation far away from Israel. So in a way, when we read Myrtle, we are reading, when we read Esther's name, Hadassah, and we read Myrtle, we are reading the salvation of God. So, closing with two takeaways. One, the providence of God. The providence of God is seen everywhere in the book of Esther. So to just name it tonight is not fair. You could you take that, use that as a takeaway in every lesson from the book of Esther. But I see it a lot tonight. It's, it's God's purposeful hand of sovereignty. Sovereignty denotes power and might and God's rule. But, but, but providence, there, there's purpose to that rule. There's purpose to that rule. The Westminster Catechism defines providence as follows. God's works, God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures, ordering them and all their actions to his own glory. So it's sometimes easy to look in scripture and see God's providence because we see these grand acts. But, but God's providence isn't just in the grand acts. It's even in the acts where we don't necessarily even see any miraculous things going on. We just see ordinary people living their lives. In fact, that's most often how it's happening. That's often how it happens. Whether it be as grand as Persia losing the Greco-Persian wars or something as vain and sinful as a lustful beauty pageant, God is orchestrating all things for him. He is working together all things for his own glory according to the counsel of his own will. Look, nothing in your life Christian is useless, is purposeless. It's nothing. I don't care if you're driving to school in the morning. It's, it's purposeful. God is using it. God is using it for something. Late night studying in the library. God is using it. Don't, don't downplay those little Moments where, where God is working, that he has willed it from eternity past, that you would be there in that position, in that moment. God is using it for his glory and for your good. Second, takeaway. We are in the world, but we are not to be of it. Though living in Persia, both Mordecai and Esther are identified with another place. They're identified with Israel. They were residents of Susa, but they were ultimately members of God's covenant people. And likewise, we are in this world. We are, as the scriptures say, sojourners and aliens. We don't, we don't belong here. This is not our home. It's passed in a way. We're temporary residents. We long 
or at least I hope you long for the return of our Lord. We echo the words of John in Revelation 22, Come, Lord Jesus. We want him to come. We want him to come. We want to see sin be finally done away with. We want to see him as he is. But, as we are still talking and breathing here, he's not yet here. And so, as we wait for him, as we long for him, what are we doing? Are we falling in love with the world? Are we being assimilated into the world? Are we being ambassadors in the world for Christ? Have we, do we recognize that we are temporary residents here and that our true identity is within Jesus Christ? While we are eagerly, while we eagerly await his return, how are you spending your time? We are in the world, yes, but we are not of it. Close with John 17, verse 14 to 19. I have given you, Jesus is praying, I have given them your word and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not asking that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, so that they too may be sanctified by the truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come before you grateful for your word. Grateful for the book of Esther and for what it teaches us tonight. Lord, we are weak and frail sinners, redeemed by your grace clothed in the righteousness of Christ, grant us, cause us to greater fear your name, to love you, to treasure you, to obey you. To not just read your word and move on with our days, but to read it, to trust it, to hear it, to do it. Strengthen us, God. Help us, God, as we are sojourners in this world to stand as bold ambassadors for Christ despite the, the, uh, the fearfulness that, that the, the, the world might throw at us, God. May we fear Christ alone and, and stand on him alone. Oh, Lord, help us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.